have a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you in the pew or raise your hand, we can get one to you. But it's the second book of the Bible. First book is Genesis, second is Exodus. We're in the 15th chapter. We're going to be looking at the first 21 verses. So I'm going to be reading them right now. The Song of Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up like a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its full of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. 
good morning. It's, uh, it's, let me just add my voice to Caleb's to uh, welcome you here and also to, to just say how great it is to be here with you in the house of the Lord uh, with uh, new friends and with old friends. And uh, what a joy it to is sing to together. sing together, to, to, be, to, to be able to worship together, to join our hearts and our voices uh, together in the praise of our one true and living God. There are few things that delight the heart of a redeemed person more than singing salvation songs. Christianity has been called the singing religion, and it seems to me that's a pretty apt characterization. Um, you just look back through history and you'll note that the church at large has a rich history of hymnody. And uh, even down to the present day, we devote a large portion of our weekly worship services uh, for the purpose of singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. And what you'll find on a typical Sunday morning, uh, what you probably found today, are men and women, boys and girls, joining their voices together to sing praises to their king. And I just have to ask, where else are you going to find something like that? Most of us are quite used to that phenomenon by now. But put yourself in the shoes of someone who's visiting church for the first time. Um, this would be one of the things I would suspect that a person might find to be a little bit odd, at least initially, but then I also suspect that uh, upon further reflection, they would find it to be quite compelling, that they would find themselves drawn in by the worship. Um, I've kind of been steeped in this environment, and so I don't have a good perspective I think the closest parallel I have is when I, I went on my first field trip with the, the high school band and chorus kids. And uh, on, the on the bus ride there and back, there was hardly five minutes of peace because inevitably someone would start singing and everyone would join in. And my initial thought to that was, whoa, you know, the jocks were right. These people are weird. But at the same time, I had to admit that there was something quite heart heartwarming about being among people so uninhibited and so happy. And then sometime later, I spent time with drama kids, and that's just a whole nother level. But... You know, being with band kids and chorus kids, it, it, it's quite compelling, if, if a tad annoying, you know, especially since their favorite song appeared to be the song that never ends. And let me tell you, it just went on and on, my friend. But in the same way, Christians sing because we're happy. Doesn't the song tell us this? We sing because we're free. And if the Bible is a bus ride, then what we find frequently throughout its narratives and its prophecy and its epistles are the biblical authors breaking out into song. Just think about how the Bible begins. Think about how it ends. Think about what's in the middle. The first songs that are sung are in the first 
couple of chapters of Genesis. And in many of our English translations, these poems, these songs are identified and then, you know, by the editors of the Bible and they kindly indent them or italicize them or both so as to highlight their hymnic nature. So for example, in Genesis chapter one, verse 27, when we understand the mind-blowing concept that God, who was before all things, create and created all things, when he created us, he determined to create us in his own image and likeness. And what do you do upon reflection of something so grand but to break out into song? Similarly, when Adam first looks upon the beauty of the woman that the Lord God created from him and for him, um, he can't help but burst forth in a sort of song. He, he comes up with a little ditty on the spot that, that just expresses in a beautiful way his love for this woman and for the, her creator. Scripture closes in a similar manner. So included in the glorious visions that the Apostle John is blessed to see are a number of songs, songs that are sung by glorified saints, songs that are sung by angels and a number of other groups of people. And so you have those Psalms of Revelation, songs of Revelation, which give us a, a sneak preview into what we'll be doing for all of eternity. More on that a little bit later. But then smack dab in the middle of the Bible, we have the Psalter. We have uh, basically a complete collection of songs for the believer for every single occasion that you could ever encounter in this life. So from the beginning all the way through to the end, what I'm saying is scripture is shot through with salvation songs. And we have a wonderful example of this in our passage today. Genesis chapter 15 is in large part the recording of a song that Moses composed and led the people of Israel to sing on the momentous occasion of their having crossed the Red Sea by the strong hand of God. And we looked at that incredible event last week and truly, uh, I think you'll admit, I know many of you have admitted this to me, this is certainly one of the high points of scripture. Um, afterwards, Merrick and I were talking at the door and we we're just talking about how preaching that passage and even reading that passage was uniquely moving. And many of you expressed to me in conversations on Sunday and throughout the week just how, how being in Genesis 14 kind of felt like we were on holy ground. Well, I think we're probably not the only ones to feel that way. It's interesting that the author here understands that you don't just simply move on with the narrative at this point. After something so great, something so momentous, the only fitting thing to do at this point is to sing. And so today we want to just pause and listen to this song and if possible, to uh, join in with it, at least in our hearts. And what we don't want to do is to scrutinize it, to analyze this song, 
like we would um, so many other pieces of, of uh, prose, it's, that's not really appropriate to do when it comes to poetry and music. You know, artists typically hate the question that comes to them uh, where people want them to explain, you know, what they meant by their, their lyrics. Uh, they hate that because a song is meant to basically speak for itself. And an even greater crime when it comes to lyrics is to take them literally. Many commentators, for example, recognizing that the song in chapter 15 is a retelling of the events of, of chapter 14, will point out what they believe to be great inconsistencies between the two accounts. And they'll use that, of course, to um, downplay the authority of scripture and point to its man-made um, nature, as they say. So, for example, when they come across the lyrics that say that the Egyptians went down into the depths like a stone or sank like lead, some, some people will say, well, actually, you know, uh, we, we've, they, the Egyptians were already on the sea floor and God just caused the water to come down over top of them. So they, they didn't really sink. Well, that's to miss the point entirely. So we'll be careful not to do that kind of thing. I think it's best for us just to kind of put on the headphones and enjoy the song and uh, make some observations along the way. Uh, I fear that I have more observation than, than there is way, but I'll, I'll try to I'll try to pull out the best stuff to share with you. And what we want to try to do is to try to learn some important things about salvation songs, about this strange and wonderful phenomenon of Christian singing. So we'll start off real simply by asking, well, we're going to just ask some basic questions of this song and see if we can find some answers. And real simply, we'll start by asking, when and why should we sing? When and why we should sing? And the simple answer to the when question is the then that appears as the very first word in the text. When is answered by then. It says, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. So then we have to ask, well, when is then? And then is pointing us back to the events of chapter 14, of which I think uh, verse 30 is the perfect summary. It says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What's in view here, obviously, is the great salvation that they experienced on, on that great day. And such a great salvation cannot help but to spark a song. If you've been saved, you really need to sing. But I think the then is also connected to verse 31 of chapter 14. That's where we left off last time by seeing the various responses of Israel um, to the God who had bared his arm to save them. We notice that 
um, having seen the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people of Israel feared the Lord. They feared the Lord. And we, we notice there that this was a strong contrast to how they were in the middle of the passage when they were greatly fearing their circumstances. Now they had a proper fear of their Savior. The, the people's next response, a, a related response, was to believe in the Lord. That is, they put their faith in him and their trust in him. They were prepared to believe whatever it was that God, through Moses, would have to say to them. And they believed that these things were true and that God was to be obeyed. This was their response, but it wasn't their complete response. Because we read, then Moses and the people sang. So not only did they respond in fear and in faith, but they responded with, festivities singing forms part of the the proper response to the salvation of the lord in fact it appears if we're looking at a list of responses it appears that this is the the capstone let me let me remind you of something that we observed a number of weeks ago which is that these climactic chapters these three or four uh, chapters that we've been in for the last little bit. These are really uh, climactic. And they, you know, we're talking about the, the last plague, the exodus, the Red, the Red Sea crossing. Those are, that's the big time when it comes to exodus. And we notice that these chapters are punctuated with detailed instructions, for example, about Passover about how you celebrate the Passover from year to year and how you engage with your children and your family the, the feast of the unleavened bread. And so what you have is great event, instructions about festivities, great event, instruction, more instructions, great event, singing. And all of this underscores the main point, which I think is the main point of the whole book, and we've taken that for our title of our sermon series. That's how convinced I am. That, that the people have been freed to worship. And not just them, but us. We have been saved so that we would sing. The very point of our salvation is to turn us into people that serve the Lord with all of our, our lives. And people that sing to the Lord. And so it's very fitting that immediately after the Red Sea crossing with uh, Egypt finally in the rearview mirror, that the people of God would worship. So to recap, why, when should be God's people sing? And the answer seems to be on the occasion of or on, even on remembrance of the saving acts of God. It's not, this is not, you know, the only salvation that God has wrought. And it's not the last time that God will bring salvation. We've been saying all along, maybe you're sick of this by now, but this is only the second greatest rescue story of all time. There's a greater rescue coming. And that, that greater salvation is going to require that we sing unto the Lord some new songs. 
Why should God's people sing? Well, we're going to actually see many reasons under our next heading, but it put it very simply, he's worthy of it. God is worthy of it. Praise is due him. The psalmist will tell us over and over again in different ways. The song, the song lyrics actually begin by answering the why question for us. Look at verse 2. I will sing unto the Lord. Why? For he has triumphed gloriously. When the Lord triumphs gloriously, <coughs> it's only fitting that we would acknowledge um, his, his great victory with songs of, of, of deliverance. Um, you know the expression, to the victor goes the spoils, but to the victor also needs to go the songs. If, if King Saul gets uh, all of his people singing and dancing in celebration of his thousands, and if David gets musical accolades for his ten thousands, how much more fitting is that response for the Lord? God has said, you'll recall, that he would definitely get glory through Pharaoh and through what he was about to do to Pharaoh. And so a failure to sing at this moment would constitute robbery, basically. It would be robbing God of the glory that is due him. And so it is if we were to remain silent in the face of our great salvation. Um, first of all, the Bible says, and I love this expression, if we were to ever do that, remain silent, even the rocks would cry out. So worthy is the Lord of worship. So we could ask another question in this first, under this first point, even though it's not on your outline. The question is, to whom shall we sing? And I hope that at this point, the answer would be glaringly obvious maybe even too obvious for me to say. But just in case, notice it, please, at the end of the top line. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Our songs must be directed to God. I say this is obvious. It's almost embarrassingly obvious. But judging from a lot of the more popular Worship songs over the last number of decades? It's not obvious enough, apparently. Many, many people have observed, this is certainly not original with me, but lots of people have observed that on any given church, on any given Sunday, whether people are singing to the Lord or to their boyfriend is pretty difficult to discern. I'm going to resist the temptation to go off on a rant here. I could very easily do that, but instead, I let's turn to another important question. Maybe I can get across what I want to get across in a more constructive way by asking, well, what should we sing about? What should we sing about? And what we're trying to get at under this heading is, what should be the content What's the subject matter of our songs? What, or better, who should our songs be about? And let me give you the answer just straightway. The answer is the Lord. 
So our prayers are directed to the Lord, but our, prayer, our songs are actually about the Lord as well. Our songs are to the Lord and about the Lord. Um, the lyrics themselves ought to be God-centered. They ought to be Christ-centered. But let's just drill down even further. What exactly about the Lord should we sing? And I think Moses' model song here gives us a lot of guidance. And so uh, let me just show you um, kind of what I've observed about the content. And there's lots of different ways to kind of break down this song. Again, I'm trying not to overanalyze it and so kind of wreck the whole thing. But I do want to, I think it is helpful as a model to show us what it is that we should be singing about the Lord. And number one, if we're going to sing about the Lord, we need to sing about who he is. Who, just who he, his person, his attributes, his nature, his character, who he is in himself. And I suppose another way of saying this is that our doxology should also be heavily theology. Our song should be a sort of confession of faith. It should, it should have the appearance of this we believe. And this we believe about who the Lord is. That's what I think this song is in large part. You'll, you'll recall that what, what the Lord was after in the rescue of his people from Egypt was that, that, that they, as well as the Egyptians, would know that he is Yahweh. That was his stated intention. It was for their knowledge of, of him, who he is, in and of himself. It's so that his people would come to know him. That they would know that he is God. And so I think it's right that our songs would acknowledge those truths. And acknowledge the fact that we have come to know something of the character of God. And of his person. So I want to just highlight some of the lyrics in the song that confess the character of the Lord. So look at verse 2, for example. We sing about the fact that he, our God, is a covenant Lord. He's not just Moses' God. He's not just the average Joe um, Israelite's God. He is the God of their father. The God, he, and, and, and he is the God of his father's father. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the point here is that the Lord God has made very great and very precious promises to the forefathers. And these are promises that are right now in the process of being fulfilled. And so we sing acknowledging God's covenant faithfulness. That he's, he is doing that he has done everything that he has promised to do because that's who he is. That's his covenant faithful nature. And, and what else? What else can we learn about God? Look at verse 3. The song says, the Lord is a man of war. Again, that's not exactly the impression that you would get listening to a lot of our modern worship songs we we certainly prefer to sing songs about 
a, a God who is a, just to use a random example, a good, good father. You know, that it's who he is. That's who he is. True, but that's only half the picture. He's also a bad, bad warrior. It's who he is. It's who he is. And, and we'll look at this particular attribute more in a minute when we see just kind of how it manifests itself. But for now, let's just be challenged to sing about all of the attributes of God and not just our pet ones and not just the ones that are more palatable and make us feel all warm and fuzzy. We're talking about the Lord and Yahweh is his name. And he has revealed himself to us in all of these ways, including ways that rightly instill fear in anyone that would hear that name. There's another cluster of characteristics that's found in verse 11. Let me just point them out quickly. He's incomparable. He stands alone. And this truth is given expression through... uh, a number of rhetorical questions. Mainly, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? And the answer is obvious. It's too obvious even to be stated. The answer is that there's no one. There is nothing that compares. And not only have the plagues and the exodus and... uh, the Red Sea crossing been a smackdown on Pharaoh. It's not just on him. It's actually been a total takedown of all of the idols and all of the gods of Egypt. All of the figments of Egyptian imagination that the people relied on for everything. For food, for water, for for fertility, pest control, you name it. The people relied on these, these gods, small g, And through this series of events that we've witnessed over the last number of weeks, these gods, who are no gods at all, have been rendered completely impotent. There's nothing that they can do. One by one, these idols fall because they can't stand against the one true and living God. He stands alone. We sing to the Lord because there's no one else who is worthy of our praise. There's no one else who even compares. The rhetorical questions keep coming in verse 11. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? This is essentially who the Lord is. The Lord is a lot of things, and it's, it's really difficult to, to try to highlight one of them, but theologians almost can uniformly have said that if there's one attribute that is the essence of who the Lord is, it's his holiness. He is holy. He is thrice holy. When we say that God stands alone, what we mean is, yes, his exclusivity. You know, there's no other God. But we're also referring to his holiness. God stands alone. He's separated because of his moral purity and his excellence. And this is, this is the attribute that captivates the angels. 
who are surrounding his throne even now. This is, this is the subject of their songs. And from time to time, we get to listen in to their, their singing, like in Isaiah chapter 6 or Revelation 4. And we hear the heavenly hosts, and we hear the four living creatures around the throne singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now, here's what happens when you confess the holiness of God. And when you do so even by singing, you can't help but see your contrasting sinfulness and lostness. Here's the insight from the late R.C. Sproul, whose whole life and ministry was keyed around this theme of the holiness of God. And Sproul wrote this, quote, when we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and of our help- hopelessness. Helpless sinners can, can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God. We may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by grace. And that's, that's where we now want to turn, to what has been wrought for us by his mercy and his grace. So not only do we sing about who the Lord is in himself, but we also sing about what the Lord has done for us. What the Lord has done for us. There's a very, very short distance between God's attributes and his acts. He acts in conformity to his character. So look at verse 11 again. It says, the Lord is awesome. And in its truest sense of the word, he is awful. Just an aside here, you know, there's, there's certain people um, that are, are very careful to reserve the word awesome for things pertaining to the Lord and pertaining to his deeds. I confess that I'm not that careful, but I very much appreciate people that are because they're right. You know, from time to time, I've used the word awesome as an exclamation when I see that my wife brings a certain brand of chip home from Wegmans. Okay, so I, I confess that I have contributed to the devaluing of that special word. The Lord alone is awesome. And the point here is that his deeds are awesome. That's not just who he is. But this is, this is how he acts. He acts in awful awesome ways and so it's only proper that we would sing about what the Lord has done for us his people what has he done for Israel well he saved them he's delivered them from their domain of darkness and slavery and they've now crossed over if you will into, into a kingdom of life and light it's all down to the strong hand of God. And if you want kind of a sub-theme a sub 
um, throughout this song, um, just track the instance of the word hand. Okay, that's just a, that's a little bonus for you. But we're, what's in view here is the salvation of his people. And salvation is a theme that we love to sing about, right? It's something that all Christian worship songs, both modern and traditional, stress. This is what most of the, our songs are about. Themes like personal deliverance and help and rescue out of our trials and out of our difficulties. That, that's what a lot of hymns and songs are about. And that's all well and good. I'm not trying to dismiss any of that. But I think one thing that you might find striking when you sing this particular salvation song is that there's precious little emphasis that's placed on salvation and rescue and deliverance, at least on that side of the coin. Because actually there are two sides of that coin. There's on one side what the Lord God has done for his people by way of, and here's the other side of the coin, what God has done to his enemies. And I hope you can see that it's this backside of the coin that is stressed in this song. That's what gets the bulk of the emphasis. Um, many of the Psalms have in their superscription, you know, that fine print at the top of the song. There's lots of interesting information there, including in a lot of times a note to the worship leader of what tune this particular psalm goes to. Well, we don't have anything like that here, unfortunately. We don't know what the tune to Moses' song was. But if I had to guess, it would be something along the lines of na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, goodbye. Because in focus are the Egyptians who have been utterly defeated who have sunk like lead into the sea, who are even now washed up on the shore. The, the repeated refrain, the chorus it seems, is this. The horse and his rider, God has flung into the sea. That's, that's the chorus, and therefore that's the theme. I don't know how that, that sits with you. That's, that's a little bit uncomfortable. We're, we're very comfortable talking about that front side of the coin, which is all about our salvation, our deliverance, our rescue. But on, it, it's through the back side of the coin, which is that the Lord has utterly defeated every one of his enemies. He's a man of war. Now, a couple things about that. We kind of skipped over this last week, but perhaps you noticed the kind of over-the-top repetition in chapter 14, of words like chariots, horse, horsemen, army, host. It, it was almost like they were putting that in there too much. And it was, it was meant to describe the supposed might of Pharaoh's military. And it becomes clear now in this song that all of that was kind of setting us up for this, this song which is mockery 
of that military might. Those mighty chariots, 600 strong. You know, the best military equipment known to man at that time. It's, it's nothing. It gets bogged down in God's mud. This military might is routinely mocked in this song. And thus, what's magnified is the glorious triumph of God who fights alone. And he fights, by the way, with weapons as bland as the breath from his nostrils. Of course, it's once again the strength of the Lord's hand that's highlighted over and over again. But the point is, friends, I don't know how this sits with you, but this beautiful song is essentially a taunt song. You can see the dynamic at play here in verse 9. Because it was the Egyptians who were taunting. This really came out um, when Pastor Matt read this, this verse. Notice the emphasis on I. This is the enemy's prideful boast. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. And then in the face of all of that boasting, all of that pomp, verse 10, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So the answer to the eyes of verse 9 is the you of verse 10. The mighty acts of God are magnified by the destruction of his enemies. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Now I warned you earlier about the danger of interpreting this song literally and you know, kind of going back to chapter 14 and finding discrepancies and then casting doubt on sacred scripture people do that and it's ridiculous because it's poetry you know when Solomon says that his lover's eyes are a, a flock of doves you don't like schedule the guy for an eye exam you know you, you, give, him, you give him some artistic license you have to believe that she would be flattered by a comment like that in the, in the same way, we understand that the Egyptian army rode into the Red Sea by the road that God created. So they were riding on the bottom. And then God caused the water to come back over top of them, drowning them. He didn't literally throw them into the sea. However, if you give Moses the artistic license that I think he's due then you'll see his point, and actually you'll see a point beautifully made, which might not have been made any other way, which is that what the Lord did to the sons of Egypt was precisely in keeping what they did to the sons of Israel way back when, when they threw all the baby boys into the Nile. So what's magnified here? you understand, is not God's just random, irrational cruelty. What's magnified here is God's justice. His enemies are getting exactly what they deserve. 
And that's why you can hear throughout the song notes about how the Lord has shattered his enemies. He's overthrown them. He's consumed them like stubble. It's part of how we, as his people, give him the glory for what he has done. It needs to be the theme of our songs. Not just who the Lord is, but what he has done. And then, thirdly, this song also gets into what he will do. What he will do. Okay, so verse 13 of of the song, things kind of change a little bit. And, and it would be hard to, it would be actually pretty easy to miss because the tense of the verbs in our English translation are the same. It sounds like past tense, but actually what is being described here, what Moses is prophesying about, is still to come in the future. But this is, this is why the, tense is, the past tense is used. You wonder, that's confusing. Why is the past tense used for the future? And the answer is because with God, the future is so certain that you can speak of it as actually having happened. He says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. God hasn't just saved them and brought them to that point on the other side of the Red Sea. What God is going to do, what he's in the process of doing, is guiding them with this strong hand. And he's guiding them to a particular destination, one that they won't get to for some time. And then notice, you can kind of picture the scene. If you picture the song developing in your mind as the people walking out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and into a place, a holy abode, a place that God will lead them to, you can now kind of picture the different peoples and nations that are standing by, watching. And as we read in Joshua, these people have heard of this Lord. The news has reached them. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. The inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of the arm of God. These people are still as stone. We have it. What's in view here is what the Lord is yet to do. And you can see how what Moses is doing is he's helping the people see as they sing about what God has graciously and wondrously done for them in the past, that's meant to propel them and give them hope and confidence for what the Lord will most assuredly do for them in the future. This ought to also be a component of our songs. Our songs should be hopeful about this glorious future that the Lord is bringing for us. And there, there is salvation. There's more salvation yet to come. The Lord is in the process of bringing us all the way home into the place of his holy dwelling. He's bringing us to a mountain, a place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established 
That's yet to come, but it is Israel's sure and certain future. And brothers and sisters, it's ours as well. Think about what's, what's to come. Think about what's to come. The salvation that the Lord will bring for his people. Just fast forward a little bit to another mountain, Calvary. And some of the, the same thing is happening on Mount Calvary. And that is God who is holy and righteous and just. It's who he is. It's who he is. He is there pouring out his righteous wrath upon his enemy. And who's his enemy at this point? It's, it's not me. It should have been me. That was my sin. That was my wickedness. That was my rebellion. I ought to have been shattered, crushed, sunk like a stone under the, the waves of God's wrath, and yet he chose in his kindness and his mercy to pour out his wrath on his son instead. In my place, condemned, Jesus did. So that I might experience the, the forgiveness of God, the privilege of being one of God's sons among God's people while his, his own son he turned his back on and poured out his wrath upon. That, that's my salvation story and, and I cannot help but sing when I consider what a glorious salvation the Lord has wrought for me through Jesus Christ. And the story keeps getting better, doesn't it? Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, the Lord gloriously was raised from the dead, thus proving God's satisfaction with his sacrifice and declaring that our last enemy, our final enemy, even death and the devil have been completely destroyed and that the Lord is going to bring us all the way home to the new heavens and the new earth. This is, this is what the Exodus story is just a small picture of it. Of He's bringing us all the way home and we have songs to sing on the way and we have songs to sing when we get there. Once, once again, I'll just give you a, a preview of uh, what we find in Revelation, just a kind of a glimpse into that final defeat Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 to 4 say, this is John seeing this for our sakes. He said, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God. And they sang a new song, the song of the Lamb saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. 
Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That's what we are in store for, our brothers and sisters, singing the songs of Moses and the songs of the Lamb, singing salvation songs for all of eternity, while God, the Holy Righteous Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, risen and reigning, has all of our enemies underfoot. Would you um, allow me just a couple more minutes to share one other thing about this passage? There's lots to share, but I want to just challenge you with this, and that is, number three, who should sing? And the answer is the Lord's people. The Lord's people. We can see this uh, simply enough in verse 1. It says, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. I want you to see that there is a corporate dimension to these salvation songs. Okay, this is for all of the people of God to sing together. And I think you understand this just on a purely physical, mechanical sort of perspective, which is that you when we're singing by ourselves, it's not that great. I mean, it sounds not too bad in the shower because there's lots of echo and it's like a chamber. It's, it's pretty good in the shower. But let's just be honest with ourselves. Individual singing is not so great. But when we come together, we can join our voices together to, to lift up a, a worthy sacrifice of praise to our God. And then uh, remember also what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. This is how he um, charges us. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And the point there, folks, is that a large part of what we're doing when we sing together as the people of God in the context of a local church on a Sunday morning or evening or whenever, is that we are, with the word of God, with the truth of God, admonishing one another. We're teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We do that by singing these theologically rich songs about our salvation. And so I hope you understand that when you come here, it's not just like, a, you know, a, a private audience before God. It's not, you're not in your own, like, secret chamber. No, it, you're with a people. And your voice and your words are there for the encouragement of your brother or your sister and vice versa. That's a charge. That's a challenge for us to sing. Uh, with all of our, our strength. But there's also, and, and also I could show you this at the end of the, the, psalm, uh, the song with Miriam. Look at verse 20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. This is like a combination tambourine and drum. It's like uh, 
Remember that band, Ran, Ren Collective? They had that thing called the Jingle and Johnny. Uh, I think it, this was this kind of instrument, but instru here's a case for instruments to be employed in the worship and the singing of so salvation songs. Miriam takes this instrument and all of the women went out with her and it says in verse 21, Miriam sang to them. Yes, she's singing to the Lord. You can see that as verse 21 continues. But she's also singing to her sisters. And together they are singing to each other as they sing to the Lord. I'm, I'm, there's a corporate dimension to these salvation songs. But I don't want you to miss that there's also a personal dimension. And so, sorry for all of the jumping around, but look, look back to the top of the song. You know, singing is kind of deceptive when, when you're singing in church like this. It's very easy to kind of get caught up in the song and to just kind of repeat the words because everyone else is singing. And you might be here today and your heart might be far from the Lord and yet you've sung the songs. That's deceptive. It, you, you don't want to deceive yourself about the sake of your, the state of your own soul. And so there, there needs to be a real personal dimension in our singing. Again, I see this at the beginning here. It says, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he threw into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Friends, I, I ask each and every one of you here today, can you say that? Can you sing that with a clear conscience? That not, of, not any of this or all of this is abstract for you, but you have personally appropriated the salvation that God has wrought for his people. Are you in that number? Can you say that the Lord himself has become your strength and your salvation? Are you counting on nothing else? Are you leaning on trusting in nothing else except God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray that you will be able to sing these things in truth. And even today, if the Lord is uh, dealing with you by his spirit, if you are feeling convicted about about these things that if, if you're if you're feeling like you're understanding the the danger and the danger of going even one more minute or hour without knowing the lord jesus christ and without trusting him for your salvation without hanging on him all of your hope for eternity then I just want to invite you to the front pew up here. There'll be some folks here that would love to meet with you and to pray with you and to help you and show you Jesus. In, in the meantime, friends, let's be a singing people and let's sing the song of Moses.